0: This is The Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Boom. And welcome everybody to this episode of The Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. I am your humble host, John Allen. Uh, If you're listening to me on a podcast platform, please look at the description of this episode and that will tell you how to subscribe. That will tell you how you would like to, how you can support us if you would like to. Us. There is no us. It's me. I'm alone here. How you can support me if you like to. There's a couple of links you can click into where you will find information on how to donate and support. If you are watching me on YouTube, that's where I want you to be. Come to YouTube. That's where the magic is. You get to see this smiling face and the smiling faces of my fantastic guests that I have coming through. And in the description on the YouTube video, you will also see those same links that will guide you to platforms where you can support me with donations okay enough of that hello dr anthony hi
1: hello john allen it's such a pleasure to meet you and to have a chance to talk
0: you know this this uh this is something i've been looking forward to i um came across the work that you do on uh, youtube some videos that you've put out and you have this fantastic focus on um How do I explain it? When most people talk about integration, they're talking about, uh, you know, the standard integration into society, you know, people learning the language, this, that, and the other, but you're talking about integrating people in the world of, uh, technology. You're talking about another type of focus on minority peoples and it's fantastic work.
1: It's, it's a real pleasure uh, of mine and it's a privilege because it's not something that that everyone is afforded, which is exactly what you were just saying there. And so for me to ha- be able to use my power, to be able to use my influence, um, you know, as a straight white guy in this industry to uh, give ch- opportunities, to give decision making authority, to give power to voices that may not uh have their may not be heard in those decision making arenas and i know that sounds really abstract and i'm happy to nail down some concrete examples for yeah. you but uh that's really my mantra it's my life goal is creating space decentering myself so that others whose voices have been marginalized for most of recent history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, to, let's let's nail
0: hard. it down. Let's nail it down. Let's get into some details about uh, what you do. How did you get started in this kind of work? Was there something that happened in your life or something that you observed that guided you towards this type of work? And then tell us more precisely what that work is.
1: I, I think there's there's been a, an evolution since I was a child, uh, but there's been a couple of key turning points. And so- Where, Where'd was, you grow up? Uh, I grew up actually in Texas, in Fort Hood, Texas. Yeah. Uh, so the work that I'm doing now feels a little bit distant from that childhood experience. Uh, but the there would I think that would be one of the earliest kind of uh, encounters I've had with inequality was coming up against a kind of a social value system that that put people into different hierarchies of. Um, kind of abilities, needs, you know, preferences and things like that. Uh, basically, what I'm talking about here is inequality. Yeah. Uh, and so as I grew up in, in Texas and I went, uh, we ended up moving my family to outside of Washington, D.C. and I started college. I took a sociology class, I think, in my first year. And it just poof, blew yeah. my mind because I'm, you know, a young white guy in a rural area, um, you know, kind of not really understanding the experience of people who are marginalized, disenfranchised, you know, pushed pushed aside, excluded, uh, and sitting there thinking in the sociology class taught by a white, you know, man professor, uh, but sitting with people who, you know, represented a much greater diversity and looking next to me and thinking, this person didn't have the same opportunities that I had coming up. Not because... Of much other than my parents, you know, how, you know, the, the world that they were born into the income that they had, the education that they had, uh, and not to mention the, the, the kind of intergenerational history that comes with. Yes. That. Yes. Uh, and so that, those were, that's one of my turning points. Another was kind of taking this opportunity to move to Norway and to start, start doing research and these, uh, issues around inequality and design. And so, there was this longer term trajectory, you know, where I am now is certainly not where I started. And everybody <laughs> sees these kind of figureheads and they think, oh, they must have always believed the things that they believe and always known the things that they No, Absolutely not. I mean, I grew up with the same prejudices <laughs> and biases that everybody in my small town grew up with. Right. It took me a lifetime to get to the point where I am now, where I recognize, understand issues around intersectionality and there's inter- issues around discrimination, issues Around uh, public accommodations, you know, things like that are complex and difficult to kind of absorb, but at the same time, are fundamental to our ability to move forward as a society.
0: Talk a little bit about inequality when it comes to design. What what is that? And uh, because this is this is something I, I saw a couple of videos that you did on that. Um, uh, I, I believe it was the very first video I saw that you had done, and I'm like inequality when it comes to design. I had never. Mm-hmm thought of that. Talk about so, that. Uh,
1: design, I, I, you know, I kind of have a very simple definition of design. Design is just decision-making, right? It's just intentioned decision-making. It's approaching the creation of something and being explicit about all the decisions we make that go into that. Right. So whether you're creating a new chair or whether you're creating a new piece of software, anything that you're creating, you're making a series of decisions. Design is about making those decisions conscious, being aware of the implications of those decisions, especially the implications on the people who you're expecting to adopt, use or somehow kind of access your your solutions, your creations. Yeah. And so in that process, we have to acknowledge that there's two kind of ways of Inequality sneaking in. Yes, one is based on our own bias. So the people who are actually creating those solutions are operating from their own headspaces, right? Which means that we have to pick apart, you know, implicit bias and internalized all of the ogenies and isms that we possess. You know, it's uh, it's it's nothing that everyone kind of shares this in some degree or another, and so. Being explicitly aware of that is one thing. Being able to design in a way that can ensure that what you're doing isn't gonna result in something that excludes or continues to marginalize people is the other thing. So you need two things here. You need an input and you need an output. You need diversity on the input side in order to ensure that the output side of things isn't reproducing inequality.
0: Now, some people would say that's an insurmountable uh, obstacle. How can you design, for example, let's say someone comes with a new kind of, um, I don't know, Apple, uh, Apple gets some competition and a new kind of cell phone comes out. Mm -hmm. And some people would say, well, you can't make this work for everybody. Mm -hmm. You can't, you know, there are people who are sight impaired or hearing impaired, or maybe even have speech uh, uh, impediments. How can you take them into consideration when you're designing a new cell phone? What would you say to those people who kind of throw up their hand and say, hey, you know, we do the best we can, and and this is is an issue that it's going to take too much time to resolve it so that it benefits everyone?
1: Uh, I would say you're right for the wrong reasons. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) You're right in saying that we will never get to the point where we're able to create something that is uh, usable for everyone. There will always be people that will be excluded, and it's just because we don't know enough. Um, And so you're wrong for the reason that we know everything, we know how to make it work for everyone, and that's 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 we can't do it because there's limitations. No, the limitations are one on our knowledge, two is on our understanding of what human identity is. So I, I, I recently found, I think it was on TikTok or something, a really great video that talked about racism. And when people say, well, I'm not racist, the kind of response is, okay, you're not racist according to what century? Uh, because not being racist in the 1800s meant a hell of a lot different uh, of, a, you know, of an idea than not being
0: racist yeah. today. I'm not right? racist, but I don't want my daughter to date a black guy or, or, exactly, or a Latin exactly. American. Yeah. But I'm not racist, you know? Yeah. so. <laughs>
1: I mean, in in the 17th to 18th century, I'm not racist. Meant, oh, I don't believe that black people should be owned, right? That, that 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 slavery should be a thing. Racist in the 1950s might have, or not being racist in the 1950s might have been like, oh, I believe in integration in schools. Yeah. You know, 1960s, 1970s might be okay. I believe in interracial marriage. So like that that concept evolves. Our understanding of what it is to be human evolves. So like things like the autism spectrum. Yes. Uh, that was not a thing, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, or is was just emerging as a thing. Issues around trans rights and transgender, that the, our understanding of what we can do today to empower these groups is not the same way it was in history. No. And that is because, not because those groups didn't exist, they existed. They were oppressed, marginalized, and ignored, uh, you know, intentionally. And so... I think that what we can do in order to maximize the potential of our design decisions is to first of all, recognize the diversity of uh, what it is to be human and seek to uh, bring in those perspectives and those insights as much as possible, as early as possible in the design process. And you will realize the outputs uh, through that.
0: Yes, good point. What do you think when it comes to the corporate world or the the world of design? How serious are they considering? What, you know, how serious are their efforts mm-hmm. to to make things accessible to mm-hmm. those who are traditionally marginalized? I mean, mm-hmm. we see very often. Um, go back to last summer. Uh, the murder of George Floyd. So many mm-hmm. in the corporate world said, oh, we're going to do this, that, and the other to div- diversify-, diversify and racial awareness and mm-hmm. different workshops and donations. Well, a report came out about a week ago that showed that only a fraction of those companies have yeah. committed a fraction of the money that they had promised. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, is that the same thing that we see when it comes to the design world or the tech world? They might speak a good case for the promotion of these ideas to be as inclusive as possible. But do they really do it?
1: Yeah, I think there's there's plenty of examples we can point to of uh, uh, purple washing and pink washing and every other kind of uh, washing of a... <laughs> Companies' image to make them look more inclusive. And I work with a lot of these companies, so I see them doing it firsthand. The the reality is here that there are usually, in the largest companies, a small group of people who truly care about the issue of inclusion and design and diversity and everything, who are fighting every day to try to make change from the inside out. The tragedy here is that many times I see these people getting completely burnt out and... Uh. Uh, losing their hope because the machine is just not engineered to produce diversity and inclusion, to uh, take advantage of, to have use uh, diversity and inclusion as an opportunity. Now, I, I do see hope. There are places where I see great, great hope. Um, a lot of what we are lucky enough to have today in terms of attention and awareness and diversity and inclusion is because of the millennial generation. And I come from the previous generation, generation X, but what I've seen the millennial generation be able to achieve in terms of awareness and actually drawing in more inclusive voices has been phenomenal.
0: I have to say, I agree with you about the, uh, you know, the millennials take a lot of heat. Oh. yeah. Um, I'm also a stand-up comic and I really rag on the millennials <laughs> in my routine but but when it's said and done it is the millennials who seem to be driving this demand for change, this demand for inclusiveness. So hats off to the millennials.
1: Yeah. It, it wasn't my generation. I mean, we no, we no. spent most of the time just resenting the world and then hating everybody. And then you I know saw, we grew up and got jobs.
0: I saw the movie Breakfast Club. It was on TV here in Norway a few weeks ago. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you just end up hating everybody who's in charge, everybody who's older than you. Yeah. That's us. That's Generation X. So.
1: Yeah, for real. <laughs> So that's one point of hope. The other point of hope I've seen really, and I think these two are a little bit tethered together here, is um, young people who are willing to go down the road of entrepreneurship, able to embed inclusion at the earliest stages of their business design. So this is not even talking about product design, but the design of their business models. And that has, I believe that will create an, a, another tipping point in the future where more and more emphasis, understanding, knowledge, and uh, empowerment can occur in the area of inclusion. And there's a third point to hope here I want, I want to bring in, and that is the work that's being done in a lot of countries in the global South is phenomenal. Okay. They are going to, uh, the countries that I work in, uh, Mozambique, Uganda, um, Somalia, Ethiopia, uh, they are leapfrogging a lot of the countries in Europe. They are in the process of leapfrogging right now when it comes to these issues of diversity, inclusion and sustainability, because all of these ethical aspects of how we run businesses, how we design products and services are there's That's the starting point for them. Yes. They're not retrofitting anything.
0: It's. And that, kind of, yeah. day one. and that kind of speaks to my observation that very often the larger companies, uh, you know, I could say the largest companies in the Western world kind of give just lip service to the concept of inclusion. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, these so-called third world nations are actually doing it from the yeah. start. Yeah. They're not talking about it. They're doing it. They're making it happen. That's going to be, that's going to be their strength as the years come on, you know?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the first, uh, kind of brushes I had with the, the level of thinking, uh, was actually in Mozambique and I was working with a group of, uh, that was focused on the rights of women with disabilities, and here I am thinking about women with disabilities and the intersectionality of what that means, is in terms of their gender and their disability. Of course, being in Mozambique also being marginalized in terms of uh, you know being black and being coming from a, a low-income country. Uh, thinking about the power that that movement can have there versus a lot of the advocacy organizations that I've worked with in the various countries in the global north, where it seems like the emphasis is more put on dividing up an empire than it is on recognizing the complexity of what it is to be human and actually pushing forward an agenda that meets everyone's needs in a realistic way. Uh, it's, it's, um, I, I was very been very encouraged to see the level of advocacy and the approach that they've taken to advocacy in, uh, in a lot of the countries I've worked with in, in Africa and, and even in China
0: now now working with these different companies in these different countries give us uh, a more clear picture of exactly what it is what it is that you do how do you come in contact with these companies and what is the plan you know you knock on their door and you present yourself, and then what happens? What do you do?
1: Well, I, I, it's it's not quite as um, cut and dry as that is. Uh, you know, all of this is built out of relationships. Uh, none of what I do is 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 connected to institutions by name. Okay. Um, I could care less if you're uh, high, you know, the highest level authority at the EU or UN, or if you're some hotshot professor from Harvard or MIT, that's not what matters to me. It's the human being behind it that matters. And so all of the work that I do begins with a human relationship. It begins with someone that I connect with who I learn from and who can hopefully learn a little bit from me.
0: Well, there's the power of networking.
1: Exactly. It is very much the power of networking and building those relationships over time, because a lot of this, actually not a lot of it, all of it is trust-based, right? All the work we do, they trust me that I know what I'm doing and that I'm able to help them in a way that makes meaningful sense for them and their local context. Uh, I trust them that I'm not gonna, they're not, you know, they're helping me and calling me out on my biases and my prejudices that I have internalized. uh, Cause that is probably the most important as a, you know, as a white guy coming into a country like Mozambique, you know, I don't come in with an agenda. I come in with like, help me understand where you're at and we can move forward together uh that's so when you know, they tell I'm, you I'm kind of an empty vessel
0: so when they tell you what their business is all about and what they're trying to do how do you assist them where where does your role come in
1: it it's um it's really responsive so i i'm a proponent of the agile methodology which is kind of project management that just says we should be responsive to changing conditions so it's going to it a lot depends on the needs in, in particular so for example, one of the businesses that I run is called uh, Mafano. It's a design lab in uh, Uganda based in Kampala. Amazing work. Uh, you guys can Google Mafano, Uganda and find out all about their How,
0: how do you uh, spell that? M-F-A-N-O. It's
1: M-F-A-N-O. Got it. Um, So they're doing some really amazing work down there with business design, inclusive design, sustainable design. And when I first connected with them, it was through a colleague here in Norway, who was originally from one of the neighboring countries, Burundi. And he just said, hey, you know, there's this really cool initiative going on in Uganda. You should hear about it. Let's, you know, talk, see if there's a way to get you involved. I said, sure, why not? You know, again, it's, it's all personality based. It's all connections and like uh, network and being human. You know, sure. it's just that human the humanity of it. And so I said, yeah, let's check it out what they're doing. You know, they, he told me more about them. I think we went down. Uh, yeah, we went down late a couple of years ago, later in the year. Um I spent a week there with the, the founders. We got to know one another. Uh, we decided you know, we're going to collaborate on this business. And then it was just a matter of what are the immediate needs? Because then, of course, COVID started, so we had to do yeah. some emergency management with that because every every business had to pivot. Um, but just understanding what are the needs. And then what resources do we have available to us? What resources can we marshal? And how can we use those resources to solve the, the problems that are, the business is facing? Once it's kind of triage, right? It's kind of somebody comes into the yeah. emergency room. You just kind of get them to stop dying. Yeah. And then <laughs> yeah. hopefully you're at a place where they can kind of continue on. Uh, and that's when I take my hands off of the wheel because I don't know what the hell... Anybody's experience is living in Kampala. I don't know what the market situation is in Kampala. I only know my background, what I've experienced, and if that can create value for them, then great. And yeah. there has been opportunities to create value there. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it would be unethical for me to stay. You know, t- to right. take a large, uh, controlling uh, uh, role in that business.
0: Now, just you, as an
1: example,
0: you you seem to be very aware of the fact that you are an outsider coming in. You, you know, you you ha- you carry a certain amount of humbleness or or humility uh, 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 with you. Do you ever consider that maybe if you were more? No, how do I ask this question? Do you ever <laughs> cons- do, <laughs> do you ever consider taking your talents that you have? That you use to help others and internalize that and just build your own design business or start your own company yeah. that has a different direction than what you're doing now. Because I, I, you, you I, seem to, you, 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 I mean, it takes a lot of talent to do what you do, it, ha- it takes a lot of people understanding yeah, yeah. to do what you do. And that is the foundation for creating some of these businesses that you're working with. You could create your own. Yeah, 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 Do you ever, do you ever <laughs> yeah. think about uh, so twist- started,
1: taking I, I a new direction
0: my- with your talents, maybe?
1: Yeah, sure, sure. I started my first business when I was a teenager and it failed miserably. So oh, I, I'm, it? I'm a long time entrepreneur with what? a lot of failures under my belt. What,
0: what was that first business? Uh,
1: it was, this is so embarrassing. Oh my God.
0: Oh, here we go. It was <laughs> a, a,
1: a nightclub for people under 21 because there was nowhere in my hometown that people under 21 could go to just hang out. Like wow. you ended up being like on the streets, just like hanging out in parking lots. Or if you were 21, you could go to a bar, but there yeah. was no other real entertainment options. No. And so I figured, all right, you know what? I'm gonna open a under 21 club in my town, found a building, put a, you know, a deposit down on the lease. I got a loan from my parents, cause of course I'm lucky enough to have that as a support. Uh, and within, I think, a week of putting the down payment on the the, um, location, uh, the city uh, passed an ordinance that said there were no uh, under-21 clubs allowed in the the city. Yeah. So, it was my first brush with regulation as well. (laughs) So, it was really a huge learning opportunity. It took me 15 years to pay back that loan to my parents. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, uh, you well, know, good on your parents,
0: good on your parents for oh, demanding that on. you pay that back. Cause a lot yeah. of parents would just be like, Oh, sweetheart. Okay. Just, Yeah. yeah. Forget about it. No, that, no,
1: right? I, I always taught very good lessons when it comes to I finance. like
0: it. I like it. <laughs>
1: so that was a really uh, important learning uh, opportunity for me. And I mean, in the meantime, there were all kinds of little tiny initiatives that I tried to get started and that, you know, putting s- small teams together, trying to see what are the competences you need for this or that. And I think there was uh, w- one initiative was around study abroad for high schoolers in my area. So we wanted to take them through Different locations in Europe, and that went up, yeah. you know, up in smoke after a few months. And uh, one of them was I, we before iPads came out, I had uh, this idea for my uncle and I actually had this idea for a digital sheet music. So ah, instead yeah. of like the r- traditional paper, you just put a kind of a tablet. This was early days of tablet, so again, before iPads, or you could just go foof, 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 and you have all of your sheet music right yeah. there. Of course, you know, a couple of years later, the iPad came out, and that that. Aspiration yeah. went up, up in yeah. smoke as well. Yeah. But recently, uh, in the last couple of years, I've opened uh, a few businesses and uh, co-founded a few businesses uh, here in Norway, and uh, I have a, I co-run a business in Ukraine and one in the U.S. So here in, in Norway, few years ago. What's that
0: in the Ukraine? Isn't that yeah. a little scary? Seeing as it's quite unstable there. Seeing as uh, you know Russia has their shenanigans going on. Yeah. Isn't that a little? I don't know. How do you how do you feel about all that?
1: Uh, it's- how has that affected you? I mean the the comp- the country is really diverse so it's a huge country yes, right uh yes. in, in the 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 things that are going on in certain parts of the country aren't necessarily always reflected in all other aspects uh, other areas of the country so we're operating out of Lviv Ukraine which is clear on the western uh, okay yeah Ukraine. yeah uh, kind of away and, from
0: where all of the yeah. <laughs> excitement yeah. is happening. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, And I mean, I I do work a little bit in Kiev, and I've wor- I I currently have a project with a partner in K- in Kharkiv, which is all the way out in the eastern side. Yeah. So you know, there's, I mean, you got to be sensitive to these issues. You got to be aware of them, and especially when it comes to human rights issues, uh, you we really have to step lightly. Yeah. Uh, and I I work in China too, where you know there are serious human rights issues concerns. Um, and so uh, the work in Ukraine, you know, it's a, again, it's built on trust. I trust the partners that I have there. Okay. Um, they're working with the UNDP, they're working with city governments. So they are well connected in the kind of machinery.
0: UNDP, so of course, what is
1: that? The UN Development Program.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This is the okay. uh, branch of the UN that's really in charge of international development right, uh, on a right. large scale. Okay. And so uh, you know it—it is—it's something you have to con- constantly be aware of, uh, because you don't want to put yourself or your colleagues in harm's way. Uh, and at the same time, it's not something you could ignore either. And no. so one of the things we're advocating for there, and our rolling out product lines, is focused on disability rights and uh, access to technology. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, the group that I'm working there is, with there is called Inclusive IT, Inclusive IT. Uh, and we've we've hit a lot of success uh, in uh, attracting attention, projects, and we're slowly starting to roll out a product that focuses on creating a sort of marketplace for businesses that want to create accessible technology with persons with disabilities who are expert testers of technology so that the, the marriage here can provide really actionable feedback and guidance for those companies to create more accessible technologies for uh, people with disabilities. I see.
0: Now, here's something that, that sounds interesting to me. Um, you mentioned that you do work in China as well. Now, how does that, how do you experience that when it comes to, uh, you know, design, uh, fairness in, desi- in design and access, uh, 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 making design uh, accessible to those who are disadvantaged? Because China is notorious yeah. for not having a good track record when it comes mm-hmm. to human rights and equality. Yeah. What have, what have you experienced there?
1: The, the, the crazy thing about my work in China has been that it's, it's not that much different than a lot of other countries. Uh, maybe okay. in human rights terms, we can say, yes, that, that China is, is, is in a different space. But in design terms, they're not far off from a lot of other countries in the world. Uh, and what we found was if you approach designers in China from the perspective of usability, that this isn't necessarily about marginalized groups. This is just about making your products and services more usable for Uh everybody.
0: I understand, yeah. Well, maybe maybe that's because they're focused on the profit. They don't, they're not really, Yeah, and because of that, it indirectly is a benefit when it comes to design equality because they're it's thinking the about entry profit. point. Exactly.
1: So it, it's a starting point of creating a conversation around marginalization then. Because you say first, you already believe in making your products usable for as yes. many people as possible. You know the importance of this user testing and, and inclu- or not inclu- uh, user-centered design. So now we have to rethink who you're putting at the center of that design, exactly, right. And then it's kind and
0: of a it's a good way to kind of slowly make them more aware, more conscious of everything that has to do with equality.
1: And, and honestly, it's the same argument I make for every and uh, almost any firm I know. Yes. Uh, and so I don't think we're so far ahead of countries like China in those terms. We're basically all struggling with the same fundamental issue. Yeah the people who are designing our products and services are making decisions that puts them into a position of power. People who don't have power don't have access to those decisions.
0: What's your best uh, success story in the work that you do? Everybody has that one case or that one uh, episode in their life and in their work that they say, yes, this makes me want to do what I do.
1: Yeah, I think um, one of them was when I... I've been working in Mozambique for, uh, six years now. Uh, and when I first went there, uh, I w- was there with a colleague of mine who, you know, he's Mozambican, he's an amazing human being, just, he's actually, he's, he's a, he needs to be sainted. He is such, <laughs> I mean, in terms of my superheroes and people who I role model, he's, he's, he's the guy, bar none. Yeah. he's, got it going on. I'll, I'll give you more info about him because he's just somebody I, I adore and admire. Uh, but anyway, so he and I went there and we collected the first data set around um, understanding and awareness of accessibility and universal design in Mozambique. So it gave us a chance to kind of establish a baseline. Where are we at in this country with this issue? And we published a couple of articles about it so that you know we got that out uh, in terms of the scientific community. And from there, we really started advocating for a change in the law. Now, there had been some talk about producing disability rights legislation there, a law for disability rights, for a little bit of time. But um, it was shortly after we collected that initial data set that they uh, really started putting it on the legislative agenda. And they were in the process of passing the law, and uh, we, the disability rights groups based there in, in Uganda with um, some support and guidance from myself and George. George is my colleague down in Mozambique. put a halt to it because the legislation was being passed without consulting the disability rights groups there. And so we said, nope, we're not going to have any of this. And we put a halt to the legislation. Now, I haven't been able to follow up since then, so I don't know what the status is of that. But in this process, we were working with uh, one of the local universities, uh, the largest university there in Mozambique, the University of Eduardo Monlane, working in their computer science department to create a course on universal design for their master's degree students. And so getting to go there a few years ago and teach universal design to 17 it was a first class with 17 people uh, Mozambican uh, computer scientists that were going to go out and lead uh, the industry there in Mozambique was life-changing
0: yes. uh, I remember
1: coming back on the on the plane and I had a photo shoot right after I touched down and I touched down and went straight to the photo shoot and was just sitting there trying to process what I what what had happened in the few weeks prior and realizing that this is something that I need to find ways of continuing that. Yes. Now the uh, precursor to that story was I had just gotten surgery on my ankle a month prior. So I was one month post op of surgery on crutches, <laughs> traveling from Norway in a wheelchair using a wheelchair from Norway to oh, Turkey, gosh. I had a connection to South Africa to Mozambique. So I'm sitting there teaching these 17 students on, on crutches. I brought I brought one of my colleagues from, uh, who's from originally from India and who is uh, completely blind. So he was there. And I had one of my research assistants who was also one of my former students. she was there. And so she we all got this like firsthand look at the way, design affects yes. a spectrum of people because here I am temporarily disabled because of my yeah. uh, because of my uh, surgery you got a little taste uh,
0: of their condition yeah their marginalized condition yeah
1: yeah yeah uh, but you know what I'll be I'll be honest with you the airport experience the easiest most accessible was Mozambique really From the time I stepped off that plane, I had somebody accompanying me, taking me to exactly where I go, telling me, you know, what else do you need? Is there anything else I can help you with? All these things. When I was in Turkey, they got me off the plane, didn't speak a word to me, put me into like, it wasn't a holding cell, but it was like a place that they were like isolated from everyone else. So if I needed to go to the bathroom or if I needed to buy something, I had to ask permission to leave. Right. Wow. And in Norway, it's kind of the opposite. It was completely hands off. They're like, oh, if you need a wheelchair, they're over there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some countries just have a certain level of awareness and some countries have no awareness of those issues. Yeah. yeah. Wow. But the
1: surprising thing here was that it was Mozambique that, it I, is had, Mozambique I, like that had, I had the yeah. greatest level of accommodation. Yeah.
0: And, and a lot of people would assume, and this is this has to do with uh, uh, the different bias uh, that is ingrained in us. A lot of people would assume that you would have the worst experience with that in Mozambique. Hello, people, wake up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and this is something that I have an argument with people about all the time. And they say, oh, you know, trying to create something that's universal design is going to cost so much money. And I'm like, look at at that as an example. You have one of the wealthiest countries in the world, Norway. And this is not to throw shade at Norway. Norway does great in a lot of accessibility issues. But are they the best? Absolutely not. Should they be? Are they the best compared to how much money they have on hand? Absolutely not. Exactly. So I'm not going to excuse them for that. Uh, and then here you have Mozambique, one of the poorest countries on earth, and they've still provided an accessibility service in a real uh, real way. They've still delivered. So, yeah. Anyways, getting to teach those students was amazing. The year after uh, I taught that class, I had 50 students in the same class.
0: Ah, yes. Yeah,
1: so it grew, like it almost tripled in size. Yes.
0: Wow, that's impressive. So you're doing things that are creating real change on the ground and... Positivity is uh contagious, <laughs> you know. Yeah. When that environment, uh that when that gr- that circle of people in Mozambique or wherever uh begin to 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 if I can use the term preach their success to others, it's going to grow. Yeah. Uh other people are gonna get infected with that positivity. Have you um have you seen you know, just talk, talk about some of the changes that you've seen. You mentioned Mozambique, mm. but what kind of changes have you seen in larger, more established countries and companies?
1: Mm, 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 mm. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. Uh, because again,
0: I worry, about, I worry about these established companies and I worry about these larger mm-hmm. nations paying lip service to the whole yeah, concept mm-hmm. of inclusion and change. And mm. it'll last for a while and mm-hmm. then it just fades back to normal.
1: Yeah, the the work that I've done in a lot of the global north and, and with established countries has been a lot, on a lot higher level. So, and I think that's kind of a fundamental problem that we run into uh, in working in the global south. It's a lot easier to get at the grassroots. Sure. Yeah, the grassroots access, is just yes. right there. It's tangible. It's right in your face. You can just access yeah. it immediately. Yeah. And it's the grassroots that has the greatest need. So there's automatically an opportunity. They're there open for, for those
0: ideas. They're, they want change. They want new ideas. Yeah.
1: But if you go into an established company, getting access to a line level employee is nearly impossible, not because there's any kind of protectionism, but just because there's not a lot of empowerment on the lowest level. And so it's even though even if the lowest level can make the critical decisions that could change things. You know, it's it's really hard to gain access to yeah. that group, yeah. uh, and so a lot of the work that I've done in established companies and in uh, even I mean I've done policy work at the UN and at, with national governments, uh, including the Norwegian government, and uh, I, I won't say it's purely lip service, but the challenges are complex because the institutions are complex. Okay. Uh, there's bureaucracy. Uh, there is. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of top-down thinking, uh, not a lot of bottom-up, not enough bottom-up. Uh, and that's where real change happens anyways. I, I I don't believe in the top-down change. The top-down change is good for setting a direction, for maybe creating a framework of action, but that's it. Sure. Once yeah. once you have that framework of action, you really have to activate people's hearts and minds at the grassroots. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, I think, the shift that I've seen happen in the areas where there has been change has just—it's the simplest thing. It's changing your mind, changing your attitude.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. It's there's not a complicated formula here. It's not <laughs> a matter of we need billions and billions of dollars to buy all this new tech and that if we had all of these new spaces and we had all these new things, you don't need. You don't need that much money. You just need a change of attitude.
0: Thinking of a What's, change of attitude, I think of. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt here. I'm thinking about those mid-level leaders, um, in the business culture, uh, it seems that those mid-level leaders have a tendency to only look upward because Mm -hmm. they want that personal advancement. They want to go from being a mid-level leader to being a top dog. Mm -hmm. Um, they want to impress those people who are at the top and they're spending so much time looking upward. If they would look Laterally, or or down, you know. Look at the look the look at the people who are running the mailroom. What can you Mm -hmm. do to involve them more in the workings of this business? What can you do to make them more comfortable and more uh, put them in a in a situation where they feel that they're contributing more? Because Mm -hmm. if they feel that they are contributing more, then they will contribute more. So there needs to be maybe there needs to be some sort of a culture change with that starting with that mid level management person. Yeah. Those are the people it's, it's, to talk to probably.
1: Maybe I think they they would be a, 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 an important actor in this whole thing. Yeah. But getting back into the changing the way people think it's also changing internally how we think about the organization. You know, the people who have the most power in any company are the maintenance staff of the buildings that we work at. Like they can change everything about the way we work. In How so? heartbeat. How so? Just adjusting temperatures, Interesting. Like, you know, like they control the environments we work in. So like the, the, if anybody should be revered in a company, it should be the people who are cleaning the, the toilets, the people okay. who are so you uh, went you went know, deeper. Uh, painting the walls. They're the ones who are shaping our everyday experience. So you this went decision- even deeper.
0: I was thinking of that mid-level manager, but you're talking about those people. Yeah. <laughs> maintenance yeah. level. Okay.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we we undervalue the people who are performing these essential tasks in our work so much. CEO can make a decision that never affects anybody on the lowest line. But somebody who doesn't clean a toilet one day, you're oh, going to see it. You're going to know that, that hasn't been cleaned. All right. So I think we, we so undervalue the people who matter the most in our organizations. Yeah, I agree and with that.
0: I was looking at it from a kind of different angle that if we could get the mid-level management aware of that fact, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, then that would actually bring about significant change because they are closer to those people. Maybe. That's why I I, mentioned mid-level management.
1: Maybe. I'm not sure. I don't hold a lot of faith for that, to be honest with you. Uh, And and it's only because I think… The, the, the where they're being held juxtaposed between the people that they should be serving, their employees and the top level management whom they should are reporting to. Yes, I don't see a lot of uh, opportunity for action there. Okay. They're being pulled both directions, and either choice, no matter what their decision that they make, is always going to be a lose-lose scenario.
0: But it's because, very difficult
1: in middle management to create win-win scenarios. But
0: because it is so difficult, isn't that an area that we should have more focus on, to where we could possibly change that? Again, that's that's why I mentioned those yeah. mid-level management people because it's you know, I think they have more influence on the way things work internally than people
1: realize maybe you you probably you you're probably right I, I i honestly don't know john holland let's say <laughs> right. let i the right. limits of my knowledge now <laughs> uh, i will say this though i don't i don't honestly uh, on all, in all the companies that i own uh we have a growth strategy that caps at seven full time employees huh. uh there is no in, i have no interest at all in creating institutions that are you know, that growth goes beyond our capacity to perform uh, responsively and I agilely see. and to even close up shop when it's necessary. The worst thing you can have is a company that's so big and everybody relies on so much that you can't afford to close it. Yeah. Right. That's, you know, society, we cannot build a, a well-functioning society with only a few players who are controlling a lot of what we do. Right. Uh, we need uh, huge <clears throat> diversity in the market. Yes. Uh, we need a lot of little players doing really, really good work to make s- a substantial change. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's my philosophy on that. That's why middle management thing. I just don't buy into it because I don't feel like the companies who are operating that need middle uh, mid level management are already failing. <laughs>
0: So how how does it work? Is, is it that companies approach you or you approach them? I mean, I, I know a lot of this has to do with networking and people whom you meet. I guess I'm interested in knowing how much resistance do you meet? How much, um, how often do you not get the cooperation you're looking for? Mm. Because you're asking um, some companies to change and change mm. is often resisted. Yeah
1: yeah yeah you're you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm fortunate enough that I'm in a position where I can choose who I work with. Mm-hmm. And so I don't work with people who are not interested in change. Mm-hmm uh, they're going to, they're going to die one way or the other. Yeah, now. And yeah. That's the brutal tr- truth of it. Either, you know, market or, you know, just human physiology, eventually people die and, you know, the yeah. world moves on. Yeah. So, you know, when you take a long-term look at things, you know, there's been so many industries that are just completely irrelevant now.
0: Yeah, The yeah. industries
1: that are really, really, really relevant right now are eventually going to be irrelevant. And so, uh, it's, it's, um, I don't, you know, this saying, uh, don't suffer fools wisely or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, I, am a huge proponent of that. And I, I translate that to, you you don't want to throw yourself up against the same brick wall over and over again.
0: I would think Uh, there's so much work, good work for you to do out there that, yeah, to, to spend time trying to convince someone, you know, uh, yeah, there's no sense in that.
1: Uh, there's more than enough
0: good work to be done out there.
1: Yeah, I learned this in my early in my career as well when I was working in industry uh, when I first finished uh, university that, you know, you're not going to I never felt that my uh, what I can do is going to be helpful trying to do change from the inside out. If you put me in the belly of the beast and try to make me change that beast in some significant way, I'm just gonna become frustrated, uh, resentful, and eventually just give up. Yeah. So I exited the beast as soon as I could. Try, I entered a new industry, <laughs> academia, uh, as, as early in my career as I could. And you know, no regrets there. Not that academia is necessarily this kind of pristine, kind of completely problematic free environment, but- There's some issues uh, there, yeah. Yeah. What's that?
0: I say there's some issues there in the world. Oh, there's Earth. huge issues
1: there. But the culture is generally good uh, and it gave me the opportunity to uh, accelerate my career in the way I have, which is I'm really, really grateful for.
0: You don't feel that you would have more um, more success or an easier path if you were doing this work from the United States? um
1: yeah that's a good question Uh, for the work that i'm doing uh the europe and uh, the eu especially in norway have been huge supporters uh and not just in lip service but uh, and financially supporting the kind of work that i'm doing
0: good funding opportunities yeah
1: yeah massive funding opportunities uh i think the eu gives millions and millions of euro every year to try to find new ways of creating you know, the world around us, uh, that to be more inclusive and more equal. Uh, and Norway puts up a lot of that money too. So I don't think that the, the channel that my career took would not have been available to me in in the US. It would have had to take a very different uh, different approach. Different what,
0: do you, what do you think you'd be doing if you were still back in the States then? How, how different would your life be?
1: Well, when I left, I was working in health research. Uh, so oh. I imagine a lot of the work that I would have done would continue down that road. So I was working with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I was working with a local uh, Fox Chase Cancer Center, uh, a local uh, cancer research institute in Philadelphia. I was working with... uh, my university and with Penn State University. So there would have been a fair likelihood I would have continued down that road in some way, shape or form. The move to Norway and the work that I did on Universal Design was a huge left turn in my career. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, I owe my partner such a debt of gratitude for having the foresight and the enough of an objective view of who I was to be able to say, Anthony, this career would be perfect for you. I didn't see it. Uh, and I, I've said this many times on my podcast and in other uh, presentations that I was not interested in universal design. I was like, when I first found that it's this topic, I was like, what the hell is this? This is just like disability and technology. I said, okay, you know, it's important, it's disability, but like, is it that important? And then I was like, okay, well, it's just a Norwegian thing. Like, you know, universal design is just about Norway. And then I was I dismissed it because I was like, oh, it's just a global north problem. It's just, you know, it's like a high income.
0: Kind yeah. Of problem. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Come to realize I was wrong about every one of those
0: things. <laughs> it's good to be wrong sometimes.
1: <laughs> it is very good, especially for academics. And we sure. don't admit how wrong we are sometimes.
0: <laughs> So tell me about your um, transition from the United States to Norway. How did that happen?
1: So I've been looking for about a year for jobs internationally. As I said, I was working in kind of the health research for uh, quite a while. And I had job opportunities coming up in the U.S., uh, but I turned them down because I was really looking for uh, work uh, to expand my horizons, basically. You wanted a new challenge. What's that? You wanted a new challenge. I wanted a new challenge. I wanted a new environment. I wanted a new social cultural environment. I knew that was important to me. Mm-hmm. And my partner is originally from Vienna, Austria. So it was also something that she wanted. Uh, she wasn't uh, looking to move to the US. It was something that we kind of chose that we wanted to move uh, somewhere international.
0: How'd you meet her? That's a long walk from, uh, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> from a the States to, to Vienna, Austria.
1: She was uh, living and working, uh, living and studying in the US um, and outside of Washington, D.C. And we met at a folk dance outside of uh, Washington, D.C. in Glen Echo, Maryland.
0: Hey, everybody, Dr. Anthony dances as well.
1: <laughs> and there is videos on YouTube of me dancing as well. So
0: you should not, not have told me my- that because <laughs> now guess what I'm going to link to in the description of this episode.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so, yeah, so we met at a folk dance and we both wanted to move internationally okay. and we weren't sure where she was studying uh, economics at the time at, uh, in Vienna. And yeah, um, I had just finished my master's degree. And so I was looking for research assistants, research fellows, PhD yeah. positions, Canada, Europe, Australia. You know, we were just looking all over. And I had got—I had an interview in Australia and Canberra. I had an interview in Vancouver and an interview in Florence.
0: You actually traveled to these interviews or did you do it no, by video? No, no, all, okay. uh,
1: all over the phone, actually. This okay. was even pre, uh, I mean, we had things like, Uh, Skype, but, you know, it wasn't as popular as it is now. So it was just phone interviews. Um, And uh, I had an offer out of uh, Australia uh, that came right around the same time as the offer in Norway. The one here, there was kind of a couple of things that influenced my decision. One was uh, the fact that In public health, which is what I studied in my master's, the Scandinavian countries are put on a huge pedestal because it's kind of like the, this is how you run an effective healthcare system. So I already had a really good impression of Norway. I also had on PBS in the US, there was a TV show called uh, Scandinavian cooking or something like that with this, uh, with this guy, Andreas Viestad, uh, who is this, uh, he's just um, a, cooking personality, a chef personality. Yeah. And uh, I loved his personality. I loved his approach to food, even though, uh, you know, you kind of, you realize the reality of Scandinavian <laughs> cooking when you move here, which is a different story, <laughs> but he had a really- That's a whole nother
0: podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, a whole nother podcast. <laughs> he presented Norway really well though. Yeah. It was a three-year position. So that was really attractive to be able to stay somewhere for three years. It came with a lot of perks. There was like an allowance to return home. There was an allowance for training and for research. So it was EU funded.
0: That's a good deal.
1: Yeah, it was a great deal. It was EU funded. There was 13 other researchers and seven different institutes in Europe. So it was a chance to really build that network, to create a network. And And that's exactly what we did. Uh, the project ran uh, really, really successfully, And I got to meet people who are literally wrote human rights uh, laws, like for the UN. Like yes. these are the people who wrote those words that we hold as our human rights. Yes. And it's so bizarre to meet these people because you're kind of oh, yeah. like, you're just a human. You, you look at the UN institution and human rights and you think, okay, this is like you know, laid down by a, some God and then it's just another person. And you're like, huh, okay, that's, <laughs> it's, it's, I get it now.
0: <laughs> no, that it's, it's that, um, it's that um, some people almost are afraid to meet celebrities or figures uh, that mm. they look up to. And mm. I can imagine that, that feeling of, of awe yeah. To talk to someone who has actually been so involved in such important work as human rights, you know things that are that are laid down uh, and written in black and white in the UN.
1: Yeah, it's 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 all it's humbling, but it's also it's it's hilarious because you get to know them on a personal level, and they'll tell you these stories that you're just kind of sitting there going, "What the hell kind of world do we live in that that's that's even a thing?" Like one of the guys that I, I met, he was. Uh, at UN headquarters, uh, he was actually led the drafting of um, the UN's Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And he works at a very premier institution. And uh, when he would travel to New York to help write this document, he had to sleep on his friend's couch. Like, <laughs> he didn't have the money to put himself up in the hotel and the the his host institution wasn't paying it and the wow. UN wasn't paying it. So you got to like... That sort yeah, of story just blows your mind because you're sitting here again, you're thinking about these hallowed institutions of like great, you know, power and wealth, and then you're kind of sitting there going, But here's a person who's literally writing a human rights law, and you're like, he's got to sleep on his friend's couch.
0: Well, it's that's just it's that's one thing that I learned doing this uh podcast. This episode with you will be episode 131. Uh, 130, yeah, thank you. 131 episodes over 14 months, roughly. Wow. And that's a lot of episodes with a lot of different people. And one thing that I have realized is that feeling of awe when you meet an important person, it's it's justified. But as you say, there's also that when you come back down to earth and you see that they're just another good person. I, I really experienced that when I had um, I had a little bit of anxiety before I was going to speak with um uh Dr. Howell Wexler he was uh a one time uh head of the department for child uh health and education at the CDC wow and and I had a little bit of anxiety I was I kept thinking that I should you know maybe I need to study I need to study up on the you know he's going to be talking over my head yeah. and and it wasn't like that at all he was the friendliest guy with the greatest sense of humor speaking in nor, you know, he didn't speak down to me. Uh, mm. uh, and it's, it, it's, you know, you, you learn something when you speak mm. to so many important people. Another mm. example was um when I spoke to Ralph Molina, the drummer for Neil, Young, for Neil Young's band, Crazy Horse. Dude, I'm thinking this guy, awesome. this guy's got, you know, he's been doing it for 50 years. He's going to have an attitude. He's going to be arrogant. No, yeah. he was the sweetest guy. Wow. I almost wanted to call him Uncle Ralph. I mean, he was just... <laughs> Just the nicest guy. Yeah, you know. That's so so adorable. (laughs) No, he was was the sweetest guy, friendly, and and great Mm -hmm. sense of humor. And it just, you know, after a while, you start learning that people are people. We're all on the same level. We all want the same things, you know. Mm -hmm. We have our varying accomplishments, which may be greater or smaller, but we're still just people.
1: Yeah, and I mean, honestly, you know, the level of accomplishment of people, I think, can sometimes be over- uh, overemphasized. I rely True. on the I found person. that out as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just like I said about the maintenance staff. Like I yeah. rely on the person to at the grocery store who checks my groceries out as much as I rely on the prime minister to, you know, keep peace in the country. Like we are well, all reliant on each other.
0: People have the tendency to have this arrogance where you think that your position is so much greater than that position over there. And I think we're seeing that in the States now
1: Mm. with
0: the discussion around the minimum wage. Yes. Look how important people are in the service industry because now they don't want to work for that minimum wage anymore. They're staying home and they're collecting, uh, what is it? $600 a week, roughly, Mm. um, for unemployment, uh, unemployment Mm. insurance. And they would rather do that than go and work for much less than that yeah. at, these, at these service jobs. So all of these years, you know, these people who curse out the waiter or waitress or mm-hmm. the person, the bag person at the grocery store, see how important their job is now? Yeah. You know? yeah. See no, how no, important not. it is? They're not taking that job. And look mm-hmm. how you suffer. You can't go out and, 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 uh, and, and, and eat at your favorite restaurant because it's not open because they don't have anybody to work there.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's yeah. interesting. hard
0: to them. It's an eye opener for a lot of people.
1: It is. It is. Yeah. And I mean if you look at the breakdown of uh, demographics in those in the service industry, you know, a lot of these positions, especially uh, positions at uh, the minimum wage level <laughs> yes. are occupied by marginalized groups of people. And, and so you add that whole I mean that this this, the systems of oppression that exist in our society that are completely unrecognized built in really, it's built really, in and it
0: has been there for so long that we yeah. don 't even acknowledge it we don 't even recognize it we don't you know nobody sees that this unfair uh, unfairly low minimum wage is a form of discrimination people don't yeah. see that, and i'm hoping that um, the longer we're in this situation where people are choosing to stay home rather than go and work mm-hmm. for that minimum wage, I hope that the longer that goes on, the more people come to realize that that minimum wage is unfair, but also that we need to lose this arrogance that we have, where we have for, for, for decades looked down mm-hmm. on those people as being less than in the job yeah, environment.
1: Right. And the stupid thing about it is, it, you know, in, in a lot of different contexts, if it's not a, a big chain restaurant or if it's not a big like uh, you know box store or anything like that, if it's just a mom and pop shop, you're less likely to have that yeah. sort of arrogance, right? If it's just the people who own the shop next door to you, yeah. you're not going to cuss them out because you got to see them tomorrow exactly. when you're going to school, you got to see them tomorrow when you're you know uh, walking down the street. So I find this issue that we have with the depersonalization of human interactions, because of the way we've constructed our companies yeah. the businesses that uh, that uh, you know we rely on uh, that's what is uh, creating a, a fundamental issue here we have these big monopolistic enterprises that are coming into towns and creating uh, you know these uh, walmart these, yeah exactly yeah. Of, of the world and uh, they employ people at the lowest possible wages and the people who the patrons of those stores then treat the people as commodities yes. not which is cuz that's what the institutions treating them as is commodities they're not yeah, treating yeah. them as employees who they care about and they're really thinking yeah. about their long term yeah. growth or yeah. their you know, anything like that. They're just thinking, how much labor can we extract from them at the lowest possible price? Yeah. And then people treat them in the same way. And of course, we're all surprised and shocked that this would happen. <laughs> uh, but like I said, it, it, I, I would be surprised if the same th- issue held up when it comes to a mom and pop shop that, again, is part of the community Uh, and that more importantly, a mom and pop shop, when they're employing people, they're not thinking about how they can extract the most labor out of them necessarily. They're creating relationships that, you know, we can also look at on a longer term basis. Yes.
0: Um, you know, if, if you pay people right, if you pay them correctly, you're going to get better work out of them. And I don't understand the resistance to, to, to something, for example, like raising the minimum wage, hmm. um, Everybody should get behind that because that's going to benefit you. It could possibly benefit you directly if you lose your job and you've got to go out and start all over again. Don't you want to get paid as much as possible? Mm -hmm. And that higher wage is going to motivate people to do more work, to give them a They're going to be more productive. There's been studies that show that that's the case.
1: And I mean, this gets into so many complicated issues, because then we have to talk about uh, the C-suite salaries, the CEO and executive level salaries, and what's the difference between them and the line level workers. We get into issues around taxation, uh, and we get into issues around the, the price of goods and services. But it is countries. a complex
0: thing, isn't it? All those it's things do super, tie together. super, super complex.
1: Yeah. I, for one, though, have no problem. I mean, we live in Norway, so we know what it's like to go to the grocery store and see that shopping bill at the end of the day and think... <laughs> Uh, I would have paid maybe a third of the price in the U.S. or, you know, I would have gotten a lot cheaper, you know, at another place. I'm okay with paying that.
0: So am I. I I used to react to the higher prices, for example, buying groceries. But now, I mean, it's the price that it is. And I don't don't even think about it. I really, really don't. If
1: I can look in the eye for the person ringing up my, uh, my food and know that they're making a living wage, that they have a comfortable living, that they're happy and, and it, the, the quality of life that they have, I'm cool. Yeah, right. Yeah. If I know that they're gonna get a month off in the summer to be able to go on vacation and they're gonna be able to afford to go on vacation, I'm good, I'll pay that surcharge because I know that the society that I'm living in is benefiting from that. Uh, that. And
0: again, there's this selfishness or this arrogance back home in the States. I hear people, I see people when I engage with them in conversation and they'll say things like, well, I had to go out and get this degree and I had to work hard mm-hmm. to get my position. That person can go ahead and make seven fifty an hour until they do what I did to make it. Mm-hmm. So there's that that there's that selfishness. There's that thing to where you don't wish your fellow American well, yeah. whereas here in Norway, they wish their fellow Norwegians well. They want them. To make that living wage, even though they are, and I put this in air quotes, even though they're only working at a cash register somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, there's not that stigmatizing of those type of jobs here in Norway. Mm -hmm. That is a legitimate job where you can make a living, support yourself and your family. Yeah, and and that's awesome. accepted. Yeah, it's great. And it's yeah. great because don't we want the least of us to have it as good as possible? And I'm not saying cashiers in Norway are the least of, of us in no, Norway. No, no, but I'm no, saying but... don't we want the least of us to have it as good as possible? If, if you look at it on a household level, uh, don't you want your youngest child to be as strong and healthy and as educated as possible? Because all that does is lift up the entire household. So then hmm. if you expand that to the neighborhood, don't you want the worst Worst off family in the neighborhood to have it as good as possible. And then you expand that to the state level. Then you expand Mm -hmm. that to the national level. Don't you want the most marginalized, the Mm. weakest of us, if you will, to be as strong as possible? Because that Mm. will only benefit the nation.
1: It's a a rising tide lifts all boats. It's that. uh, Well, there you go.
0: I said it with a million words. You said it with one sentence.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I I said it because somebody else said it. (laughs) That's
0: why I'm a podcaster. I like to talk too much. (laughs) No
1: worries. No worries. The other other way I've heard this put is that um, after the monarchies uh, fell, that in Europe, um, uh, as the democracies emerged, everyone was treated like nobility. And in the U.S., everyone was treated like a peasant. Yes, yeah. So that's the kind of way in this. I don't know where I've heard that, but uh, it's not my saying it's uh, I'm borrowing it or paraphrasing it. But uh, I think the the analogy kind of holds up in a lot of ways uh, in the estates. You know, there was this always this feeling of um, you don't deserve what yes. you've gotten. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Uh,
0: yeah.
1: And uh, the, the issue of deservedness and the issue of merit uh, <sighs> creeps up so much and it's so connected, uh, ideologically with race and gender yes, yes. and, uh, all the and nationality and all the other problems of, uh, of, um, kind of discrimination and prejudice that, you know, es- eschewing yourself from that and just kind of saying, yeah. okay, that I'm not going to worry about that. Maybe that is an issue, maybe it's not, but I'm not going to worry about this merit issue. What I'm going to worry about is looking at how we can lift up the most marginalized groups yes. and see what kind of effect that has on the on the world around us. And from what I can tell, you know, in my in my little life, uh, it's had profound effects. Uh, by Did being you say
0: your being... little life? Don't say that. <laughs> <You are doing laughs> well, no, such... We're here
1: for a very short you, time. <laughs> you...
0: <laughs> no, but you are doing such important work. I mean, you are Thanks. magnifying... Your influence on a daily basis. I mean, you're doing things that reverberate throughout mm-hmm. the, the particular society or the particular business that you touch. Um, uh,
1: it's easy in my area of work to get really frustrated with the progress of things sure, because sure. it seems like every time you make a couple of steps forward, you making a, you're making a step back. Yeah. I try to remind my students and some of my colleagues who you know I mentor. That uh, 250 million years ago, there were dinosaurs. A couple hundred years ago, we got human rights. So we've come a long way. <laughs> come a and long we, way. Like, even though things are slow, and that's a privileged thing to say, that you know, we just need to be patient. But at the same time, we have come a long way. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to the generations who came before, who have championed the rights of uh, all marginalized groups. And, uh, but the fight goes on, and it will, I don't think we'll ever finish this fight.
0: Uh, no, I don't think we will, um, especially when, um, I mean, it, it, Norway is one thing, but when I look back home to the United States, it seems like. American pride is misplaced. It seems like American pride has become something different. Like we were talking about that harshness, that thing where, where, you know, you evaluate whether or not a person deserves something that should be a basic human right, Mm. such as a living wage. Mm. It seems like American pride is, is, it's been redefined. We're proud Mm. of too many, too many people anyway are proud of being that tough guy that set that that calls yeah. out the person who's demanding a minimum wage. You know yeah, why do yeah. you deserve that?
1: Yeah.
0: And it's the kind of work that you're doing that will bring more awareness to things that should be quite basic. You know these okay. the, you know uh, things like universal design, things like equality. It should be a given yeah, that yeah. everyone has focus on that. Yeah. So. And,
1: Human dignity is another part of that equation that I think we've really lost sight of. Haven't we? We we talk a lot about equality, which is great. I think we need to continue that conversation around equality because, again, it evolves. But we've lost sight of this basic issue of human dignity, which is also our fundamental right. And that Means so to me, it just kind of means being nice. I, yeah,
0: well, I'm, I say that all the time. It's not. It's not very complex. You know, this whole thing. You'll hear a lot of people on the right talk about how political correctness is such a bad thing. Why can't we just get rid of the word political correctness? correctness and can't we just say that uh, being an asshole is a bad thing? <laughs> can't we just say that being kind is a good thing?
1: Being respectful.
0: Respectful. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really basic. It's not that I mean, hard.
1: This is my response to people who bring this conversation up is that I was taught as a child to be respectful of other people. Especially people who have a different experience than me and to give them the benefit of the doubt because I have no idea how they've come up and what they've experienced in their life. How am I ever ever have a reference point for someone who's, you know, come up in a completely different environment than I. So I'm not going to put my expectations on them like that seems so bizarre to me fundamentally. Yeah. it's like uh, looking at a raccoon and being like, "Oh yeah, I, I got you all figured out." <laughs> so you, don't. you don't. It's a raccoon. <laughs> you know, it's it's a different you know analogy here. But like, I, I, the point is that you know we can't imagine what it is like to live in another person's shoes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, compassion needs to be brought to the forefront.
1: Compassion, yes.
0: compassion is being pushed aside. Needs to come back to the forefront. Just think mm-hmm. for a second. You know how, how how does that person feel? Yeah, what has yeah. that person experienced? What can I do to yeah. maybe smooth the path forward for that person? Because it doesn't really take a lot to do just right.
1: that. Yeah, it really doesn't. Uh, I talk a lot about uh, surrounding yourself with diversity, and I think this is one of the been a critical um, aspect of my growth has been uh, being deliberate. About working with people who have different perspectives than I have. Yes. Um, in my industry, academia, computer science, I could work with white dudes all day long. That would not <laughs> be hard, <laughs> and we would all talk about the things that we love talking about. And everybody would be like, "Oh yeah, it's of course it's that way. We that's the yeah. only thing we yeah. ever know." Yeah. It is a challenge to bring people with different perspectives into you know your your working teams or your your life, but that challenge comes with such Personal and professional growth. Yes. That you could not imagine. Yeah. I'm not here where I am today because I've only worked with people like me. I'm here today because when that person that had a completely different background than I had challenged me on something, yeah. I was like, oh my God, we need to work together because I need to understand why I'm wrong.
0: Exactly. And that's why diversity is important. Diversity mm. brings around, it brings about personal growth. And who doesn't yes. want to grow? Who doesn't want to grow? so yeah
1: yeah i wish that were a more commonly held value
0: who doesn't want to grow i wish john, more people wanted to grow. john allen for stats minister yes Come in. please i'll vote, vote you vote in me. my friend i'll vote you in so let me let me ask you this what is a typical work day for you how much time do you put towards your work and what do you do in your free time
1: um so you seem I pretty am, relaxed
0: you don't seem like a stressed out type of guy
1: no, I'm super chill. Yeah,
0: you are. You are.
1: <laughs> no, I always say that because the people who are really close to me would laugh hysterically if they heard oh. me say I'm super chill. Oh,
0: okay. Um,
1: no, I, I'm... Uh, all right, so here's here's my daily schedule. I, I'm an early riser, so I'm usually up... Uh, Sometimes as early as four, but I usually get up around four thirty to four thirty to five thirty. Yeah. I also go to bed super early, so I'm not necessarily shorting myself on what's sleep. What's
0: early? What's early for you? Uh
1: nine, nine thirty. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm getting a full night's sleep. It wasn't always like this. This is uh I've had sleep problems since I was eighteen. Okay. But yeah. um uh usually four thirty, I'm up. I get ready. Uh, First thing I do, make myself a cup of coffee, meditate. So I have a Ah, nice little espresso maker that takes 20 minutes to make espresso. So while it's cooking my espresso, I sit down and I meditate. Before I turn my phone on, before I look at my messages or anything like that, I'm I'm tech-free for the first 20 minutes of my day.
0: Beautiful. Beautiful.
1: Next thing I do, I have my coffee. I check my two two messages I check. One is my partner. Uh, see how she's doing. See what she, uh, how did she finished up the night. And one is a really good friend of mine. And I just check and see how she's doing.
0: Yeah.
1: Next thing I do, I sit on my couch. I play Switch until 6.30. 6.30, uh, my Google Home tells me, Anthony, time to get to work. And <laughs> I And I it. go, uh, I put on my headset. I find a good podcast that can teach me something because I'm still in, like, information absorption mode. Sure.
0: Never
1: go, ends. It never ends. No, it never ends. It's learning is lifelong learning. Uh, go for a walk around uh, down the river here, the Akerselva River. Uh, so if you're ever out at 6.30 a.m., you'll find me walking down between Grinolaka and Grinland, uh, down that river and uh, head back to the house, 7 o'clock, finish getting ready. I'm sitting down at my computer, usually 7.30. Okay. Um, starting then, I'll do creative work till about 10. Uh, so this is, you know, work on my podcast, work on my website, content creation generally, maybe work on some business development stuff, but really trying to get creativity in at the yeah. earliest part of the day. Yeah. Writing. I love writing early. Uh, it's my golden hour uh, around. I usually start. I usually grab a bite to eat around 10 and I'll take a leisurely breakfast. So I'll eat for like a, take an hour, maybe even an hour and a half if I have the time at
0: home or out.
1: No, I I eat at home, okay. you know, Corona and everything like that. Yeah, but yeah. Um, if I go out, it's usually just have a cup of coffee and sit in the cafe for a
0: few minutes. You know what I miss? Just to shoot in here, I miss Oslo coffee shops. Yeah, I miss taking. I, I live in I live in Drammen, and every mm-hmm. once in a while, it works out that my wife and I we can mm-hmm. jump on the train, come into Oslo by like you know seven thirty eight in the morning, mm-hmm. and just kind of watch the city wake up and and mm-hmm. sit and look out a window through a cafe. Yeah. And have a That's coffee. Beautiful. Gosh, I miss that.
1: And you know, it's also a surprisingly good coffee destination, too. It I is. Travel oh, lot. gosh. Absolutely. I, I'm hard pressed to get a decent cup of coffee outside of Oslo.
0: Oslo is the place to go if you know, You know, And I, I wasn't a coffee drinker before I met mm-hmm. my wife, she got me hooked on cappuccino oh boy and yeah yeah and uh and uh now it's it's been a while not just because of covid but just because you know life but uh before we had our kids when we had a lot more free time we we would do that take, yeah, the, yeah, take the train you. and well actually we would drive we would because dr- it was a lot easier with parking back then in, mm-hmm. in oslo uh drive into oslo park the car and just walk walk around mm-hmm. And oh here's a new one and, we'd go in mm. and good Lord, the caffeine rush we would get <laughs> because we would just, <laughs> a whole day of just going into coffee shops and drinking coffee, but it's just so relaxing. Anyway, I, I, I just had to say that. Like, I'm sorry. Continue. No, what's no, your, what's your, <laughs> what's love, your day? Um, what's your day like?
1: So I'll have uh, my breakfast slash lunch around 10. Uh, I'm back kind of in the office around 11. And I usually like to do 11 to three or 11 to four. I like to do a lot of more critical thinking work. So that's okay. the time that I schedule for um, the real more intensive tasks or meetings that I have to do to keep progress moving forward.
0: But up until this point in your day, you've pretty much been alone.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. More of exactly. an
0: introspective time from the Absolutely. time you wake up until roughly this time around 11 or so. Yeah,
1: roughly around 12, 1230. That's okay. when I start doing the yeah. more hands-on kind of work. Um, then around 3.30 or 4, that's when I schedule some of the meetings that are more informative, more kind of um, just there to kind of yeah. check in, more administrative, yeah, uh, more routine. Yeah. So 4.30 till, let's say I put a cap, usually like 7 o'clock is the latest I'll run a meeting. Uh, after that, I'll grab a quick bite to, for dinner. Uh, and then just lay on the couch and play video games until nine <laughs> o'clock. <laughs> it sounds so, a little pathetic, but I no, I, I, no I but love I it. you
0: know what I, I like that because a lot of people in a um complex job situation that you're in, they won't set aside that time, you know, I can see it in your very presence, it's in your mm-hmm. face, it's in your eyes that you are v- quite relaxed. Thank you. And yet a lot of people that do your kind of work are not relaxed. They're stressed mm. and they work, 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 work constantly. Mm.
1: The, I've, I've, I've approached this. Str- I mean, the, the stress level in my job is definitely present. Sure. Uh,
0: you you literally I, have I, I, lives in your hand.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, I have uh, the coping strategies that I've adopted um, has been a couple of different approaches. One, I can use five minutes really, really effectively. So if I have five minutes between a meeting, like I will literally lay down on my couch and just close my eyes and lay there for five minutes. And that is so restorative.
0: That is so recharging. Oh my gosh, gosh. yes, it's very Uh, effective.
1: And one of the things I recently started doing, whenever I feel that tension, that stress of like, my mind's going crazy, my body's starting to tense up really bad. I'll just do, I'll sit down and it sounds so stupid. I'll do 10 push push-ups.
0: You know what? It does not sound stupid. (laughs) It doesn't sound stupid. I'm, uh, I can relate to that. I am, um, I'm a power lifter. I was on the US national team. Nice. Yeah. And I have some Norwegian records. I set the Norwegian uh, uh, raw squat record in 2019. I was 50 when I did that. Damn! But after that, actually during that entire process, I've had several operations. Um, mm-hmm. Most recently on my shoulder was in May of 2019. I set the record in February, 2019. My seventh, I think it was seventh shoulder, seventh or eighth shoulder operation was in uh, May of 2019. Wow. And then now in March of this year, I had a neck operation. So you can say from the the, the spring of 2019 until now, my opportunity to, to train has been drastically reduced. I'm yeah. in horrible shape. I can't exercise the way I want to. Mm-hmm. And I feel it, not mm-hmm. just physically, but also mentally. Yeah. The stress, um, because it was a coping mechanism to be able mm-hmm. to exercise. You really do unwind. You mm-hmm. really do treat yourself, if you will, um, uh, mentally, emotionally, and physically, mm-hmm. of course, when you train. So doing those push-ups to two push. Minutes, it, to push yeah. to do it. But doing it resets
1: that, everything.
0: Absolutely it does. It's, it's, it's quite effective. And I wanted mm. to touch on that because for anybody that's listening, that is so important to take care of your stress levels. Stress mm. can be good. Stress can be a motivator. It can put you into action. Mm. But if you let it just spiral. snowball, and sp- it will spiral out of control.
1: Mm. But
0: something as as simple as doing you know, 10, mm. 15, 20 push-ups <laughs> you know, are running in place. I know people who will run in place for like yeah. two minutes. And, uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Jump now rope. Yeah. Yeah. And it really will cure that moment of stress, yeah. that moment moment of panic. People use that to control mm-hmm. panic, uh, Absolutely. Uh, uh, people who suffer from pa- uh, uh, from chronic panic uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. disease. Yeah. It
1: just gets you out of your head, Yes. Uh, or at least for me. It yes. gets me out of my head. It gets me into my physical yes. body, gets the good chemicals kind of flowing through my body. So then I'm like, oh, yeah, it's not, it's not the end of the world because somebody sent me a three-sentence email that I <laughs> imagined was coming across as like a person attack or some nonsense. And it was actually just them asking me, Hey, can we meet next week? And you know, you read way too much into it.
0: It's, it's really good to do that. It will distract you from a moment and just remove you for a moment from mm-hmm. that thing that sets you into that stress yeah, uh, condition. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's important.
1: And for me, I mean, a lot of these uh, issues have been chronic. I mean, 20 years now, I've been working at the pace that I'm working. Uh, if, if the, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a middle-of-the-road kind of person. I either do it all the way at like 11 or I just completely ignore it and pretend like it's not an issue. Uh, one of the things I'd been pretending like wasn't an issue, uh, at least for probably 17 years, was my mental health okay. uh, and the impact that the stress was having on my mental health. Yeah. And it's not for red flags or warning signs. I had so many people on my way up in my career saying, Anthony, you need to be, you need to work less. You need to be less stressed because this is going to have an impact on you. And I said, nah, I'll figure it out when I'm older or, you know, what's the big deal. I'll be, you know, okay. So I die when I'm, you know, 72 instead of 73.
0: Well, everybody but- should desire longevity in whatever they're doing. And if you desire to be in the game over a long period of time, you've got to take control of that from the very get go. This whole thing with mm-hmm. with with stress, with working too long, and I I, I look at that in a um, in an athletic from an athletic perspective. Mm-hmm. It's real easy to put this from an athletic perspective and into to life, into business, yeah. into work. This whole thing about longevity, you have to pace yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I can go in and I can lift. You know, uh, I can have a workout for powerlifting that. You know, there's thousands of kilos that will be lifted during that training mm-hmm. uh, regimen, but I also have to plug in my rest and recuperation period. Yes. So as it is for athletics, so is it for life and business yeah. and work.
1: Yeah. And that cycle can happen really, really quickly or it can yes. happen much more slowly. Yes, I had a, a voice teacher who taught me a really valuable lesson earlier in my career who said, you know, the reason why he was very... Um, he would teach voice, uh, voice lessons to like metropolitan opera stars. Like he was w- working at the top of his game. So the fact that I got le- to take lessons with him was a huge uh, So you're,
0: you're, a, you're a singer, you're a vocalist?
1: I was in a, in a, a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, he, he would tell me that because uh, I would ask him, what is your secret? How can you manage? Because he was on flights to Paris and London and New York every other week. And I said, how do you manage this kind of lifestyle? And he said, uh, you have to let it flow through you. Oh. And I think this is this is why I do the pushups, because the pushups let me process the stress. Yeah. And if you don't, if you bottle it up, then you will burn out, you will Take that to your it's grade. It's just a matter
0: of time. Yeah, it's just a matter yeah. of time. Sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: What kind of what kind of singing did you do? Uh,
1: I I studied music at a university outside a liberal arts college outside of the outside of D.C. for about four years. Okay. I um, I started there studying uh, just vocal performance. Yeah. Um, I within the first year I started studying uh, different kinds of music uh, studies. So I studied archaeomusicology, which is
0: like
1: like archaeology and like music history, (laughs) but the other. So I did a study of this um, uh, artifact from the Middle East that was housed at the University of Pennsylvania. So I did the first study on that. Uh, It was just a little bone flute made out of a goat leg, Uh, and so I did. I wrote a whole paper on it. They have it at the museum now.
0: How do you write a whole paper on a bone from a goat that (laughs) turned that's turned into a flute?
1: Lots of interlibrary loans of books like (laughs) this big of archaeology manuals. You know that thing. Uh, It was it was a very interesting. It was a wonderful. It was one of the teachers that I respected the most because she taught uh, like a two-class series in music history. And so I got the idea for doing the study at the first semester. And I told her, I want to study this through the full year because I need that time to like actually dedicate it. And she said, well, fine. I have to give you a grade at the end of the semester. So I'm going to give you an incomplete in this class. And then when you submit this paper next year, I'll give you the final grade.
0: Okay. Yeah. And
1: I, realizing that that was an option and that teachers could... A con- like support their students yeah. in
0: the way
1: was so that's very supportive me. yeah yes 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 so i kind of uh that was a really important part of my life anyways you asked about the performance so i studied musical theater for a while i ended up studying uh, opera performance as the uh, kind of that's where i exited that career Amazing. um i did a few performances on the university level i sang with the philadelphia symphony orchestra for about a year While I was studying, while I was in grad school, and then working full time at a university, and it like I didn't have the right tools to cope with working uh, nine to five in a tech job at a university, studying the epidemiology of HIV/AIDS in the evenings, and then going to rehearsal at like eight or nine o'clock at night until you know ten or eleven, and then coming back home and doing it all over again for a performance. Um, I I did it for about a year, but it was just so much cognitive leaping that I couldn't kind of Uh, do well in all of those respects. So I I I dialed back. And of course, arts are always the first thing you stop doing.
0: Um, And
1: so I focused in on the research and the public health stuff.
0: I always have so much respect for people who study music. I hesitate to call myself a musician because i have no education in it i'm self-taught yeah,
1: that's not a, that's uh, not what defines a musician
0: no you're and you're right and you're right although there are some people who will look down their noses at those yeah, who don't understand those who don't understand music theory um mm. i of course i practice music music theory as a musician but i don't understand music theory, <laughs> and that's where the, the the conflict can come in with those who are educated in music <laughs> but cool muse, musician
1: yeah. Yeah. It was a wonderful part. And that taught me a lot too. Cause I mean, one of the things you learn studying music is, uh, the, like the, the, um, work ethic that comes with routine practice Oh yeah, and you know, you'll find no one with a more ethical, more work ethic. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but with a more of a dedication to their craft than pianists. The pianists at my school would practice for 10 hours a day and like mind-blowing amount of effort put into their art and their craft. And I'm just sitting there thinking like, I don't put in 10 hours a day now. And I love my job with a passion. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm just thinking here, like these young people who are really dedicating themselves, they learn a level of work ethic that most of us never get in in university.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that arts is the first to go if someone is pursuing multiple degrees. And that's true. Mm -hmm. Arts usually are the first thing to go Mm. i wish that was not the case because i agree i agree those who who uh those who practice the arts Mm -hmm. are some of the most interesting people those those are some of the people that have the most to contribute to society not just because they can play the piano or because they can paint but this thing up here the knowledge that they can share the views that they can share with the world
1: there is no innovation without art. Uh, exactly, it's it's so undervalued, and I, I have these arguments with people a lot of times because I'll get approached by especially academics saying, "Oh, you can't you know be a master of multiple fields." Okay, fine. I'll accept that maybe I'll accept the premise maybe that. If you focus on multiple fields and you may not be able to drill down to the level that if you just focused on one no. said, so, however, the value that comes out of knowing multiple fields yes. is much, much, much greater, much more beneficial than just knowing one field. Uh, so thoroughly.
0: absolutely. And you, I-
1: you we have these role models are out there. Darwin was he worked across multiple different yeah. disciplines from yeah. anthropology on through to uh, evolution, science, biology, and everything else. We have Pythagoras, wow. m- musician, musical theorist, and uh, 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 mathematician. <laughs> we true. have yeah. Da Vinci, yeah. you know, artist, as well as engineer and innovator. Like We have so many role models. Steve Jobs. I mean, we so, have so yeah. many role models out there. And I, I hate that I just cited all men. But um, you get my point, like the, the ability to think across multiple fields is so valuable, absolutely It critical. is.
0: I'm a believer in gathering as much knowledge as possible. I salute the Jack or Jane of all trades.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, gather as much knowledge as possible because more knowledge just puts that individual in a stronger position to not only... Uh, help themselves and their family, but to be in that strength, uh, have that strength in their home base to then be able to reach out to help others. Mm -hmm. And you only get that way if you have a multitude of uh, 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 sources for knowledge. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Jack or Jane of all trades, those are the ones Mm -hmm. that are going to make the most change in the world, I believe
1: we have to uh, we have to not only revere people who have that kind of ability to think across think laterally is what yes. they're doing think yeah. across multiple fields we have to stop shaming young people if they're not working in the field that they got their degree or if they've tried multiple degrees yes this i have so many students who come to me and they bear this weight of shame that comes with oh i did this degree in this field but now i'm working in this other field i wish well, that i could have found a job in my field no
0: no well, lot, don't
1: don't yeah. don't uh, fr- uh, frame it that way at all
0: no a lot of people would look at that as a sign of indecisiveness but i look hmm. at that as a sign of that th- that's a person that's on a quest for knowledge Yes, that's a person who, that's a person who, who sought knowledge in engineering. They got their degree and they find out they're not satisfied with just that knowledge. So now they're branching off into, you know, into whatever. And I see, yeah, yeah, you know, and I see, I see nothing negative in that at all.
1: And the the, the negative, the bad part of it is the people who are like single-mindedly pursuing one career field and hate it. We have enough doctors, lawyers, engineers <laughs> yep. who hate their jobs. Yes. We don't need any more people who hate their jobs. We need people who love their jobs. And that means we need people to be able to have the freedom to experiment, to study different fields. And we, that means we need radical reform to our education systems because our education systems are so garbage at giving people that opportunity yes. to transition yes. to different ways of thinking in different fields. Yes. Field. yes. Um, yeah.
0: I, I, just, I, I love these kind of discussions. Here we are, we, you know, you, you were brought on to speak about your work and we're branching off into, but then that kind of says something about you and about your work. Uh, you have to have a broad vision. You have to have your, you have to dip your toe in several pools and mm. test them out in order yeah. for you to do your work most and, effectively. Am I right? I I didn't
1: know that coming up. I mean, I started my, my academic career studying business, yeah, right? Yeah. And I always studied business because my mom was like, yeah, well, if you study business, you can do a lot of different things. So I was like, okay, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Let's just study business and see how it goes.
0: So, So what have you studied? What degrees do you have?
1: So I got a business degree. I got a liberal arts degree. I have a music minor is what I ended up graduating with uh, all because I didn't do my final, um, my, my senior performance. No. Um, I actually, I actually turned down a theater scholarship to oh. uh, to move to Philadelphia and uh, start my graduate studies. I got a master's in public health and then a PhD or not a PhD, a doctoral degree in um, social and political science. Mm-hmm. So I, I run across a number of fields here, but I, um, I didn't know any of this coming up. So when I finished my business degree and then I went in to start studying music, that was a left turn for me. That was, I had no intention of using my business degree. When I finished my music degree and I went on to study uh, public health, I had no intention of using my music degree. No. It was only later in my life towards my mid and, and end of my thirties that I was able to start weaving some of these threads together, see, yeah. start understanding, okay, now that I have the social and political science ag- uh, like angle on things, here's how that might relate to the health angle on things exactly. and then bringing in that music ethic of practice exactly. and you know, bringing that into my- And vision. there
0: is the benefit of of, of, of cultivating your interests in several fields. Uh, if you if you're not I don't know if you're not satisfied or if you just feel like there's more to learn, do it. There's no yes. downside to that. It's yes. nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, you might have your parents scratching their heads and wondering if the, if if a scholarship has been wasted or or whatever. But but in the end, it's just the gathering and cultivating of new knowledge. That's all it is. Yes. Yeah,
1: I mean, I had uh, friends and family member asking me up until very recently, "When are you going to finish in sc- finish school?"
0: <laughs> and so, <laughs> yeah.
1: you know, yeah, you know, probably never. I mean, I, I still think about what would I study if I went out if I started a bachelor's degree tomorrow, right? And like, what would I study if I wanted to get another master's degree or just start a whole new career? What would I do? And uh, I think that we should always do that. That's self-reflection. That's uh, challenging yourself.
0: So if I were to, first, let me make sure that I pronounce your last name right. Giannumis? Yes. Okay. So if I were to ask you, Dr. Anthony Giannumis is, what would you say?
1: Um, Dr. Anthony, I, so the way I usually pitch it is, uh, action researcher, social entrepreneur and, uh, and, uh, equality advocate. Um, I, am still pretty comfortable with that. That's a good pitch. Yeah. It's not bad. It's going to have to do for now. Uh, I don't know what my third act is going to look like. So Mm -hmm. I just started my second act of my life. Right. So first act was just trying a whole bunch of stuff. Seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, seeing where I, what I love, seeing what I don't. Second act started really recently, a couple of years back when I made the decision to uh, basically get back into the grassroots of things wow. and restart my career as an entrepreneur, uh, really focusing on impact. And that's still, that's still taking shape. I, I don't even know what that's going to look like in the next 10 or 15 years. Um, but I it's something I want to dedicate myself for. I'm committed to making a 10-year uh you know growth in this area. After that, it's hard to say. I think the best thing for me to do is to f- continue to find ways of decentering myself, recentering the work that I'm doing on the people whose lives need it the most and who have the greatest chance of taking it forward. Um, so I, uh, that's really my goal and mission here is just to take myself out of the loop, uh, use myself as the beacon to attract as much attention as possible and then refocus.
0: (laughs) Well, it's, um, that's a beautiful description of who you are and what you do. Um, That's a good place to round off this episode. Works for me. I tell you, um, but I, I hope you'll come back though.
1: Uh, oh, you say time and date. I'm there for you. Even if it's tomorrow, I would be happy to do this again, John. I really enjoyed this.
0: Like I said, you, uh, you, your, your work attracted me right away. I, I, I think it was the, the same day I saw your first video when I approached you about coming on. Really? Oh, wow. It's, uh, and, and, and that day I sat and I watched tons of your videos. I'm like, this is a guy I have to speak with. This is a guy who I I can learn something from. Uh, This is a guy who is doing uh, good work. And you've proven my first inclination to be quite correct.
1: It's so meaningful for me to hear that because that kind of validation uh, really helps you through the times that can be uh, more challenging. So thank you for that.
0: Well, the validation is in the results of the work that you do. I'm just a guy who... who, uh, who stumbled upon you Uh, (laughs) but thank you so much for coming on my podcast dr anthony giannumis everybody a work in progress (laughs) and for those of you who are listening or watching uh please uh subscribe 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 uh that's how this thing grows uh that's how i continue to do what i do if you'd like to donate you will find links to different platforms where you can donate and support me uh in the description of this episode Okay, thanks for being here. Remember to love, uh, be loved, and uh, enjoy the process. Bye, everybody. Okay, man.